Our scripture reading on the second Sunday of Advent is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 68 through 79. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let me pray for you, Robin. Father, we thank you for our brother. We thank you, Lord, for his preparation and the word that he'll be sharing with us. Father, we pray for your anointing upon him now as he shares with us the, this marvelous text on the subject of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know if James mentioned it last week, but um, this Advent season, the texts are coming from the lectionary. Uh, that's a system of reading and preaching through the Bible, through the scriptures, that um, has got a long, long history in the church. So when James asked me to preach uh, this Sunday, um, the request came along with a list of um, scriptures, some of which we've already read this morning in the, uh, in the service. Um, and as I read through those passages and tried to dis discern from the Lord um, what I should use as a passage to preach on, uh, I kept coming back to, Zechari <coughs> excuse me, to Zechariah's song here in Luke 1, 68 to 79. Now, that might just be because this passage is so familiar to me. I don't come from a liturgical tradition. I really don't come from a liturgical tradition. Um, I got saved in a charismatic uh, Presbyterian Church of Scotland. That's not an oxymoron. Okay, that's not, <laughs> that is not an oxymoron. I got saved in a charismatic Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Um, spent most of my life in the charismatic circles. And for the last 15 years, I've been an ordained Baptist pastor. So I'm not from a liturgical background, okay? Um, but ever since I first taught on worship more than 20 years ago, um, I've had a deep uh, respect and love for church lit liturgy. And that might be why, um, in, a, in the midst of a particularly difficult time for me in, in Kabul, uh, for more than a year, I actually used the Anglican service of morning prayer as a structure for my daily quiet time. And so that meant uh, that most mornings I would pray the words that were just read for us. Almost every morning in Kabul I would read, I would pray those words because although the, the passages to read changed 
in the liturgy, that particular passage is kind of a fixed um, part of it towards the end of the um, of the service. And I was always conscious as I recited Zechariah's words, praising God for his faithfulness in, ask, in acting to rescue his people from their enemies, that I could say the same thing. That I had been saved from people who had quite literally been trying to kill me. And the challenge then was to continue to serve him in Kabul without fear. It was more of a challenge to apply the second half of the passage to my own life as Zechariah prophesies over his newborn son. And we'll get to that in a bit. So there are two verses in Zechariah's song. I mean verses as in verses of a song, not verses as in like a Bible verse, okay? So verse 1 from 68 to 75 is praising God for his faithfulness, his faithfulness in rescuing his people. And then verse 2 from 76 to 79 is a prophetic blessing that uh, Zechariah pronounces over his newborn son who would grow up to be known as John the Baptist. And we can learn something from Zechariah about what it means to praise God. Because he starts off with, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the very next word is because. Because biblically speaking, there are two reasons why we praise God. Because of who he is, his character, and because of what he's done, his acts. So a few weeks ago, uh, a month or so ago actually, I was uh, sitting here in a service and I was reduced to tears as we sang, Who I Am. So who, who am I? Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. That about nails it of the essence of why we worship God. Because of who he is and because of what he's done. Now, every generation has a mix of worship songs, and this one is no different. And sometimes I hear worship songs and I go, in what way has that got anything to do with God's character or acts? But, you know, that's, that goes all the way back down through history. You can, there's a lot of 19th century revival hymns that I can't stand because they're just dripping with sentimentality. Uh, so it's not just a modern thing, right? Um, most scriptural examples of worship, even the most emotional and personal of psalms, do come back eventually to some aspect of God's character or something that he's done. So Zechariah, like other scriptural writer of worship songs, he focuses on who God is and what he's done. So who is God and what has he done? Well, according to Zechariah, God is the faithful one who keeps his promises. In verse 72, God is the one who has shown mercy to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. 
part of the point of the Advent season is to remember that the word becoming flesh in the person of Jesus is not some last minute afterthought on God's part. It's not like the father turns to the son one day and goes, um, I've noticed they've really made a mess of things down there on earth. Do you have any ideas about how we could fix that? And the son goes, tell you what, why don't I go down there and see if I can sort things out? Although I actually have heard the incarnation explained in terms that sound very close to that. (laughs) No, the incarnation is the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness to his own character and promises. I'll say that again. The word of God becoming human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth is the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness to his own character and promises. And it's clear that Zechariah is aware of that because his psalm of praise is full of references to Old Testament promises. Like Psalm 132, 17, which talks about Jerusalem and says, Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a resplendent crown. Or Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. I think it's pretty clear that those verses or verses like that are in Zechariah's mind as he sings his praises to God. Because he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That strange expression, a horn of salvation in the house of David, means a king from David's line who will save his people. So this first part of the song isn't actually about his own son. So, you know, this is about... You know, this is on the occasion of the birth of Zechariah's son. But it's not about his own son because his own son um, isn't from the line of David. Like Zechariah, he's, a, he's from the line of Levi. This part of the song is about Mary's son. Because when, when Mary came to visit a few months earlier, she too sang a song. And her song also spoke of God remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants just as he promised our ancestors. That's in verses 54 and 55 of Luke 1. So both songs are rooted in God's character, his faithfulness to his promises. While Mary's song is about social justice, about lifting up the humble, filling the hungry, and sending the rich away empty, that always worries me because in global terms, I'm definitely one of the rich. Anyway, um, Zechariah's song is much more about rescuing God's people from their oppressors. So both songs celebrate God's faithfulness, his character, that he keeps his promises to their their ancestors, but they focus on different things. So what has God actually done according to Zechariah? Well, the first thing he's done is come come to his people in the person of Mary's baby, who's still in her womb, right? Then Zechariah says he has redeemed his people. Actually, he hasn't done that yet, has he? Because Mary's still pregnant. She hasn't given birth to Jesus yet. And it will be 30-odd years before 
Jesus fulfills his destiny and saves not only those of his own people who turn to him, but all those who turn to him, including Gentiles like us. But here's the thing. The very fact of Mary's pregnancy is enough to ignite Zechariah's faith to believe that it will happen. He will be dead and gone by the time it happens. But like a true prophet, he declares something to be true even though it hasn't happened yet because he believes God's promise. And you know, it's not just prophets that can believe God's promises. We can believe God's promises too. And not just the general promises in Scripture, personal promises. Is, is there something that the Lord has spoken to you that you're still holding on to, you're hoping for? Is it possible, can you praise him today for the fulfillment of the promise that he's put on your heart, even though you can't see it yet, even though it may be a long way off? Can you be like Zechariah? And take that promise that the Lord has given you and praise him for it, even as you wait for it. So the rest of Zechariah's psalm is about God raising up a king from the house of David who will save them from their enemies and all those who hate him, hate them. So God has come to his people, he's redeemed them, and he's raised up a king to save them from their enemies. Now at this point, it would be normal in many circles, um, to make a comment about Zechariah being mistaken about the nature of Jesus' kingdom, that his is a spiritual kingdom, not a political one, etc., etc. Um, but let's not jump to the spiritual application too quickly. Why does Zechariah long for a king to come and set them free from their oppressors? Well, he says, it's to enable us to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is a good thing, right? First Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving should be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We should be longing and praying for peace. Not just for our own lives, but for the world around us. So that we can live in peace, to worship and serve God. And so that there is freedom to share the good news with others. I came to faith in the 1970s. Uh, and there was a lot of excitement at that time about Jesus' imminent return. Because 1988 would be 40 years since the foundation of the state of Israel. And clearly, that's when Jesus was coming back. We all laugh now, but seriously, there was, those, of, those of, of, of us from my generation remember those days. Um, now, one of the side effects of all this end times focus was a way of looking at Jesus' words about there being wars and rumors of wars and famines that ended up, often ended up sounding a bit like this. Things are getting worse. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus is coming soon. And I actually heard it taught that we shouldn't pray for peace because it would delay Jesus' return. 
But it seems to me that this season, when we remember the coming of the Prince of Peace, is a particularly good time to pick up on Zechariah's prayers and Paul's prayers. Because God knows the world could do with our prayers. In Pakistan, Asia Bibi is still in hiding, even though she's been acquitted of blasphemy charges. She knows that simply being accused of blasphemy in Pakistan is a death sentence. And that threat hangs over the entire Christian community in Pakistan. In India, the BJP's policy of Hindu nationalism is making life very difficult for Christians and Muslims and anybody else who isn't a Hindu. In Afghanistan, believers continue to meet in secret for fear not so much of the government, who are more occupied with fighting the Taliban and Daesh, but for fear of their family and their community. We have Iranian brothers here today who have fled from their country because of persecution, and we just heard of somebody who's been arrested because of their faith. In Palestine, Christian brothers and sisters continue to suffer, not so much for their faith as for their ethnicity. And while in Antalya, Antalya is relatively laid back, but there are places in Turkey where it is much more difficult to be a Christian. So it seems to me that that taking time this Advent to pray for all these brothers and sisters to pray for them that they would be able to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all their days, that that would be a good thing to do. Don't you agree? So Zechariah's praise is about God being faithful to his promises and giving peace to his enemy, giving peace from their enemies. His prophecy is actually about his son's, his, his son's part in that. Now, any parent would love for their child to do well and make a difference in the world. I think that's true for any parent here. I think it may be especially so for those of, those of us who have been called to serve the Lord as a vocation or left their homelands to serve the Lord overseas in some way. I look at our, our children's peers from boarding school in Pakistan, and many of them are not ordinary. Their lives are not ordinary. The children of overseas workers in, often have an impact on the world that far outweighs their numbers. And Zechariah was in what we would call full-time service for the Lord. He was a priest, and it was during his time serving in the temple that the Lord had spoken to him through an angel. And the angel had said some pretty amazing things about Zechariah's, Zechariah's son-to-be. He said, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zechariah may have doubted the angel's words at first and he got struck dumb for that. Um, But he's fully on board now. And the first words out of his mouth after nine months of silence is actually a riff on the words of the angel. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I wonder how Zechariah felt about that, to be honest. 
I mean, I'm sure he was proud that his son, going, his son was going to be a prophet, that he was going to be part of God's great plan of salvation. I imagine it would be a bit like a son from a Catholic family becoming a priest. It's a very a great source of pride. On the other hand, if Zechariah knew his Bible, then he knew that life wasn't easy for prophets. They tend to make enemies in high places, and that costs them. If not their lives, then at least their freedom and comfort. And John would be no different. He'd live a hard life in the wilderness, end up in prison, and die at the hands of the king. Do we have mixed feelings if our kids are called to serve him in what might be dangerous places? There's no sign of that in Zechariah's blessing for his son. But then, there wouldn't be in public, would there? But maybe, just maybe, when they were at home, sitting by the fire at night, they worried about their son and what God's call in his life might mean. And John's call was very specific. To prepare the people for Jesus' coming. To go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And through that, he'd have a a share in Jesus' ministry. Giving his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, shining on those living in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide their feet into the path of peace. Zechariah's praise had to do with peace from external forces. It had to do by being rescued from the hand of their enemy to be able to serve God in, in holiness and righteousness before him. His prophecy is much more personal. It's about forgiveness of sins, about being led out of darkness and the shadow of death and into the path of, path of peace. Often we feel like we have to choose between those two options. Are our problems a result of the actions of others, what Zechariah calls our enemies and all those who hate us? Or are they a result of our own failings, for which he says we need to experience the forgiveness of sins and learn to walk in the light, in the path of peace? Depending on your background, history, theology, all that kind of stuff, you might tend to lean towards one or the other. But I think the Bible teaches we don't have the luxury of a choice. We don't get to say, as some of my friends on Facebook love to say, whenever anything terrible happens, that all problems are problems of the human heart. People need to get right with God, then the world will be a better place. Until then, all we can do is preach the gospel and get people saved. But neither do we get to say with some of my other friends on Facebook, I have a really diverse Facebook community, um, that focusing on individual salvation is burying our heads in the sand. We all need to be activists, working for a better world here and now, not in the sweet by and by. We don't get to pick between personal peace with God and striving and praying for peace around us. They're both part of the promise. They're both part of our call. I used to be involved in work with amongst Afghans to help develop young leaders. Um, and I and a number of colleagues worked together to help develop, develop civil society. That's that layer of society between government and family that we take for granted in many of our home countries. And it was exciting to see so many young leaders from that group standing for election to parliament earlier this year in Afghanistan, knowing that their base isn't in their ability to, to deploy armed men, but in service in their community. I've also worked in discipleship of believers. I never spoke about one as being the platform for the other. They're both part of the call. 
Because to put it bluntly, dead people can't respond to the gospel. And any small thing that I can do to change a culture of power and death in the direction of peace is worthwhile doing. It's a step towards people being able to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all their days. It doesn't just apply at the national level. That applies at the level of our families, our communities, our workplaces, wherever we are. As followers of the Prince of Peace, we're called to work for social and national peace as well. Earlier I said I struggled to apply the second part of this passage. But then I realized one day, praying it in, in Kabul, the Lord was speaking to me as well. Now, I know there's a big difference between what the Bible teaches and what the, Bible, the Lord uses the Bible to say to me individually. Um, having said that, one, at one point while I was praying through these words in, um, in Kabul, he saw that I too am called, we too are called to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, to invite those living in darkness in the shadow of death to walk in the path of peace. And each of us can do that in our own circle of influence to share the knowledge of salvation. And as we walk on the path of peace with God, we can also work for peace in the world around us in our families, our workplaces, wherever the Lord gives us influence. John was called to a unique ministry, preparing the way of the Lord for his first coming. Each of us has a role to play in preparing the way for his second coming. This Advent season and on into the new year, as the Lord gives us opportunity, let's share the gospel of peace with those around us. And let's also work for peace here and now, knowing that when we are, as we do that, we're anticipating the kingdom to come. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of being involved in your mission to reach the world, to invite people into the way of peace, to experience your peace. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to do that in the situations you lead us into. In Jesus' name, amen.